truly I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And that's really our pivotal point that we want to launch off again for this week. We want to look at how it is in God's word that it gives information about his plan and purpose with this earth. And specifically with the inhabitants on the earth, you and I. And how it is that we can be part of God's plan and purpose. And so last week we looked at some ideas behind this and, and how the name is used in scripture to some degree. And we started off looking in Genesis. And just to reiterate a couple of verses from Genesis and, and some themes that we want to look at this week on this developing an image. You remember in Genesis 1 it says in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And we know that when we look at this chapter, we're talking about the creation of man, in the image of man perhaps looking like God, or being in his image. But what we want to look at this evening, we want to lift our minds a little higher from that point and look at this from a perspective of our minds being molded into the character or the image of God. Now, that sounds like quite a, quite a handful for us to try to accomplish, but we're going to see in the design of God's plan and purpose that he has had with us and what he's showing in scripture is this is exactly what the plan was from day one. And that it was that man would be made in his image to have his character, to have dominion over this earth and share that with the rest of creation. And where do we get this idea from the Bible from about this character in Christ? And how do we align this with the Lord Jesus Christ? We just started alluding to some factors on that last week, but this is really what we want to see this, this week is how when Jesus said in John 14, verse 9, that he that hath seen me hath seen the Father, that he was referring to this character. And so where we get that from is in Hebrews 1, verse 3, reading of Jesus, it tells us, who being the brightness of his or God's glory and the express image of his person. And it's that phrase there, the express image, where we get our Greek word, character, as we see on the top of the screen here, which refers to the figure that is stamped. Okay, so let's keep that in our minds. It's, it's all about this figure or this image, as it were, stamped upon the thinking of the individual. And in this case, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in the book of Hebrews, was the exact express image of God's character. Now, that's interesting. Because we looked at last week where we saw Moses was trying to find out about God's ways and God's character. And the design is that we would learn about God's ways and God's character. You remember when we looked last week that God blessed them and said, Unto them be fruitful and multiply and replenish or to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, over every thing, living thing that moves upon the earth. This was the idea. And really, there's these five aspects that come out um, that I'd like to break it down just, just to kind of memorize that God is asking 
of his creation to learn about. And what he wants us to do is be fruitful. In other words, to bear fruit or to branch out and bear that fruit to others. To multiply, which means to grow or to increase in the knowledge of the Lord. To replenish, or as we saw with that word, to fill the earth, ultimately with God's glory, as we see in Numbers 14, 21. To subdue, and that's the idea of a footstool. So if you think about a, uh, a nation that uh, conquered another nation, and ultimately uh, it was as if that nation would become their footstool, and you can put your foot upon them in subjection. And this is the idea, but the idea is that we're going to be subjecting our flesh. We're going to be submitting ourselves to God and his teaching and his ways. And then ultimately that we could have dominion and rule not only our minds first, but also the rest of God's creation and the way that he has appointed for us to do. We saw last week that there was a conflict. We just started developing the fact that there was a seed of a woman and a seed of a serpent starting in the early books of the Bible developing. It's almost like there's this contest between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And the result we saw from Genesis 6 was that when the mixture happened, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown, or as the scriptures say, men of Hashem in the Hebrew, which is where we get this word name. So men of the name. And these men were making a name for themselves. And this is uh, the unfortunateness of some of the stories you see early in the Bible. See, when you turn to Genesis chapter 6, we see that there was an abundance of uh, multiplicity. They were multiplying on the earth, but there was absolutely no fruitfulness. And the other characteristics that God had in mind for man to develop was not being developed. Genesis 6 and 1 tells us that it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them. This is when we see there's no fruitfulness uh, mentioned at all in the chapter. In fact, verse 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so here's this battle that started to ensue between those that were trying under persecution to learn about God and his name and his character. And then there were those men that were lifting themselves up to make a name for themselves. If we just think about this serpent seed, as we see aligned with Cain, scripture shows us in 1 John 3 that it says of Cain, who was of that wicked one. See, it aligns Cain with the seed of the serpent. That he brought fruit of the ground, representing wisdom that comes from beneath, earthly, sensual, devilish. His actions reveal the state of mind that is alienated from the word of God. He showed worldly ambition. It says that he went out from the presence or the face of the Lord. And he built a city or his own city and society, we learn in Genesis 4. Upon which he impressed his own character rather than the character that God had in mind. He made his own mark, you could say, on society. And this appears from the name he gave his son Enoch, initiated, instructed. He gave the same name to a city, a society instructed and educated in the way of Cain, we learn 
in the New Testament in Jude verse 11. And so we say, see the mind of the serpent or this animal thinking passed on to, the, to that society governed by the carnal mind. Another character that comes out early on in Genesis that's very much worth looking at for our discussion this evening is Nimrod. See, after the Genesis flood, we see that apostasy repeated. We have Nimrod reenact the career, you could say, of Cain. We're told in Genesis 10 and 10 that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And we remember from last week that Babel is where confusion comes from. And it's interesting, however, that Nimrod, the word Nimrod, according to Jacinius, means rebel. Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter against the Lord. Some translations there have the mighty hunter in the face of the Lord. He had another ambitious, he was another ambitious individual who was the founder of a great city known to us as Babylon. Well, what's interesting about Nimrod is actually his name in Hebrew comes from a root where we get this word Mara or to make bitter. His name has to do with bitterness. In fact, in Strong's, it has beside his name, he will make rebellion. In the Jubilee Bible, it says in Genesis 10 and 9, he was a powerful hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the powerful hunter before the Lord. In the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And so we, we see this development happening of rebellion, which seems to have locked itself in a people that are more happy to make a name for themselves rather than putting on the character that we are to be put on and shown, shown in the Bible that we are to learn about. And last week we looked at God's name in Exodus chapter 3. We saw this word Yahweh Elohim and we looked at the multiplicity of ways and the dynamic of Hebrew how it could be said in different ways, which really shows and explains God's purpose, first of all, in his people, Israel, and secondly, in those who identify themselves with the hope of Israel. And this name means, I will exist in mighty ones, or I exist in mighty ones. I will be mighty ones, or I am that which exists in mighty ones. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God can exist and manifest through us? Well, Exodus 4 has three signs that were shown to Moses after he was shown and told this name by God. Moses had the question to go to the people and say, well, Lord, if I go to the people and explain to them your name, what if they don't believe me? How will they know about you? How can they understand? In Exodus chapter 4, if you have your Bibles there, you're, you're going to see in Exodus chapter 4 something very interesting. That God actually gives three signs to Moses to show the people. And we're going to just examine that just briefly here. But we're going to see that it all centers around believing in the fact that God is trying to manifest his character in, in Israel. And ultimately that message is that he is trying to, to manifest himself in us as well. So just let, let's consider these three signs. The three signs are found in verse 
verses 1 to 9. And they were given to Moses to show the people how God, or Yahweh's plan, is to deal with a number of things. So the first sign was the ground serpent to the pole that we see in verses 2 to 5. And you see in that instance where Moses has a, has is told to grab this serpent by the tail, it turns to a rod, which he then puts back on the ground, and it turns to a serpent, which eats the other serpents that are on the ground there. But the point is, we're going to see the development of something to do with this serpent and pole. And it's going to have to do with Yahweh's plan to deal with sin and rebellion. Just like Nimrod in his name had to do with bitterness and rebellion. God has a plan of salvation to deal with man's sin and rebellion, which is shown in this first sign. The second sign that was to be shown was leprosy cleanse. And this has to, in verses 6 to 7, has to do with Yahweh's plan to deal with the leprous or the sinful mortal condition of man. And lastly, the third sign that Moses was to show was water to blood upon the dry land in verse 9. And this points forward to the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ through baptism. So we just want to examine those three signs just very very briefly to make some connecting points on that, just to see how God deals with man and, and rebellion in this in this way, in these conditions. So just for time's sake, we made some overheads here that we can go through. That, we, that Numbers really is a story of rebellion. It's an account of rebellion. You start in Numbers chapter 11. You have the children of Israel complaining, wanting flesh to eat. And we're told that you have despised the Lord, and they were smitten with a plague. You see all this complaining and rebellion in Numbers 11. So you get to Numbers 12, and you have Miriam, whose name actually means rebellious, and Moses speaking against Moses, it says. Miriam became leprous, white as snow, and she was shut out from the camp for seven days because of this rebellion of speaking against uh, Moses. And in Numbers 14, we have the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron yet again. Where they say, let us make a captain and return into Egypt. Because they tempted God now these ten times and have not hearkened to his voice, we're told in verse 22. That they would not be allowed to see the promised land. God says, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Those who murmured against God would die in the wilderness. Who spies, who caused the children of Israel to murmur, died by the plague. So you just see so much negativity in these, in these earlier chapters of, of Numbers in this rebellion. But sandwiched within there, in Numbers 14 verse 18, we have that the Lord is long-suffering. He's of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. This is God's character stamp that we saw last in our last class from Exodus chapter 34. And we can see this a number of times in scripture if we keep our eyes open and look for it. But it's very interesting that often you'll see that this statement is encroached in, 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 in and around rebellion. We remember that in Numbers 14, verse 21, it said, Truly I live, all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
And that's why we see this character stamp put in between these chapters, even though we see rebellion. God is trying to show us that he has a plan and a purpose of overcoming that rebellion in each and every one of us. It continues in Numbers 6. We, we saw last week the men of renown or the men of Hashem, of the name, making a name for themselves. They rose up and gathered against Moses and murmured against him. The end of that chapter, we see the next day the congregation murmured against Moses and Aaron, Aaron which led to a plague. See, the effect of these rulers trickled down to the people. And this is what's important is we have to be very careful at all levels that, that we don't murmur in this wilderness wandering. Number 17, we read again that they murmured against Moses. This is the account where, where God told Aaron and, and the rest of the men to take a rod, as a and that rod of Aaron's bloomed or blossomed. And we we're told that that was to be a testimony or a witness against the rebels. Thirteen rods in this chapter, which is the number of rebellion in Scripture. Thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, Yahweh said. Verse 20, Moses smote the rock twice. Moses and Aaron kept from entering the land because you believed me not. And interesting, the waters in this area were called the waters of Meribah. And there we have that rebellion word once again, just like we saw with Mara, like we saw with the word Miriam and the, and the word Meribah. They're all from the same Hebrew word, word that has to do with this, this rebellion, just like Nimrod, that rebellion. So we see Israel striving and rebelling against God's word. And ultimately, where we wanted to get to was, was chapter 21. Because in chapter 21, it really paints the picture of how God is going to conquer this. This is where we, we're going to now start seeing the character of the Lord Jesus Christ being illuminated in our minds. See, the people spake against God again in this chapter. They were blaspheming. And so fiery or poisonous, venomous serpents were sent. Just like they were being poisonous or venomous in their speech one against another and to Moses and Aaron and to God. God sent fiery serpents. And Moses made a serpent of brass and he put it on a pole. If, if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, we're told, he lived. What's interesting about this is we have this illusion between that which is lifted up in Numbers 21 and 9, and this is picked up in the New Testament in speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you just turn to John chapter 3, here's a, here's a chapter that many people know about. Uh, it's actually John 3.16, but just before we get to that, you see in John chapter 3, in the context of verse 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the, in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we have this, this symbol, you might say, of the rebellion of the people that was lifted up upon, on the pole. It's as if God was saying that you have to now crucify the affections and the lusts. Do you believe that? This is a way to redemption. The serpent that was put on was, was harmless and non-biting. 
just like the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in the New Testament, that no guile was found in his mouth. That's in 1 Peter 2.22. That there was belief required in this serpent. They had to look upon this serpent to be saved. And we just read in John 3.15, Whoso believeth might not perish. And so we see this great connection between the serpent in the wilderness on the pole and with the Lord Jesus Christ as the solution to what we, are, we ought to do. See, the focus here is not on the pole, but it's the object that's on that pole. That which has been lifted up for the wise to consider or to behold. We're told in verse 9 of Numbers 21, when he beheld, or when he paid attention to and regarded what this meant, the serpent of brass, when he regarded that, he understood and he lived. Now the second sign, just moving through uh, these briefly, the second sign, leprosy, when you think about the instances of leprosy in the Bible, we see that it was miraculously inflicted as a punishment for sin or rebellion. And, and that is shown in three different instances throughout Scripture. The one we saw in Numbers 12, verses 10 to 13 with, with Miriam, where she spoke against Moses and Aaron at that time. And there was a leprous instance because of it. Another story in the Bible is found in 2 Kings 5, verse 27, in the story of Naaman, the Syrian, who had a servant named Gehazi. And we see the rebellion of Gehazi at the end of that story. We don't have time to look at it, uh, unfortunately, for this evening. But just to jot our memories, that led to leprosy because of his rebellion. And lastly, the example I have here of King Uzziah, or King Azariah, in Second Chronicles 26. And again, he usurped the authority of, the, of a king priest. And he went in to try to, to offer on, on the altar without being a priest. And leprosy sprung up in his head, in his forehead, to show that thinking was corrupted. The way he was thinking about things had been corrupted. We see in Leviticus 14, verse 19, that the cleansing of the leper required a sin offering, thereby associating leprosy with sin. So really, the cleansing of leprosy is a, is a sign of the Messiah. In the New Testament, John the Baptist sent unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or should we look for another? And he was told, Tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed. In Matthew 10, we read, Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as, as you go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. And we see these in these instances in the New Testament. And just think about God's character, as we read about in Exodus 34, now being displayed in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's even shown in these accounts. We have in Mark 1, verse 40, there came a leper to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And see, we see this kneeling action, this humble submission. That is required. In verse 41 and 42. We read that Jesus was moved with compassion. In the Old Testament. That's that Hebrew word rahum. Which had to do with, with the womb and the bowel area. Which had to do with where we have these emotions. 
and put forth his hand and touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. There's so many scriptural times we see that Jesus was moved with compassion and had mercy on people. And this is the character of God that we're being asked to display and show in our lives. But do we get it? Do we understand that, my dear brothers and sisters and friends? It's hard sometimes for us to shine and show forth his glory. This glory of the Father that was shown through his Son. We see this leprosy cleanse happen when Jesus was begged for mercy. This humbleness, this submission we see over and over again in the New Testament that's required. And, and Jesus says, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole to these individuals that showed forth that they wanted to be healed. And we have to be ready to, to heal those that are looking for that healing. Now this last sign, this, this water and blood, it brings to my mind 1 John 5, and there's a, just a few verses there, but just notice what it says here in connection to this water and, of, and blood that was shown as a sign in Exodus 4. The counterpart in the New Testament says, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. It's the spirit that bears witness because the spirit is truth. And we'll just go down there. It says water and the blood and these things agree in one. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name or on that character that Jesus is trying to show from the father. If you believe on that of the son of God and notice it says here, not by water only but by water and blood. And so if we think about water as being the step of baptism and the necessity that, that is needed by baptism, but what we're being shown in this sign, dear brothers and sisters, is that water was not enough. Just like the children of Israel were baptized when they went through the Red Sea. They had a baptism, but it wasn't enough, see? They turned back to rebelling, and these things came out of them these, these, these uh, we'll, we'll say, as the Bible says, the works of the flesh were starting to be manifested, but not God's character. So it's not just the baptism, but it's the baptism and the blood. The blood relates to the sacrificial work or the pouring out of your life in service to God. And so water and blood are both required in the walk of a believer. Do we believe this? Let's see if we can apply a couple of these as examples um, that I found in the Bible that I thought might help us in seeing how to apply and maybe some of the spots where some people had some issues. Well, we know that Cain, we were told in Cain, of Cain in Genesis 4 that he went out from the presence or the face of the Lord. Now, did you ever think of the, of the account of Jonah? It's, it's an account that many of us know very well. But if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, it's interesting because Jonah, we're told, rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. See, he's starting to go in the same way, you might say, as the seed of the serpent. He's starting to, even though you might say he's a prophet of God and he's been, you might think, baptized. And that would be enough. There's more to learn in learning about God's character. And this is a really good chapter to come to to see these examples of God's character. 
See what happens in Jonah chapter 1. First of all, in verse 4, Jonah 1, we, we learn that it's the Lord who sent out the great wind into the sea. It was God who caused this because of Jonah going away from, from the Lord. And verse 11 says, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? He says in verse 12, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They feared Yahweh exceedingly. And offered a sacrifice unto Yahweh and made vows. And so what we see, which is really interesting, is a conversion in the life of Jonah. It happens in chapter 2, actually. There's a prayer when Jonah is swallowed up by this great fish. And in verse 2 it starts, it says, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of, of the grave cried I, and thou heardest my voice. And, and it goes down, and, and he, he really re reiterates the fact that in verse 5, the waters have compassed him about. He's in a really bad situation here. He's about to drown. And verse 6 at the end says, Yet hast thou brought up my life from correct corruption, O Yahweh, my Elohim. And he calls on the name of the Lord. And in verse 9 he says, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And you remember from our last class, we were looking at some of the names of Yahweh. And here we have encrypted right there in that term, salvation is of the Lord, is the very namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ, Yah saves. You see, this is the true baptism, we might think, of Jonah, where he now finally, under this figure of baptism, aligned with three days and three nights that the Lord Jesus Christ was in the grave. And he's now being brought to the thought of God and his purpose and his character. Well, what was wrong with this story? What did he not understand? And that's what we want to try to get out of this. Is because, again, he was told by God to go preach to the people of Nineveh. And he was running away from that. Now, Nineveh, by the way, means the residence of Ninus. Ninus, that is, Nimrod. And you remember from our earlier slide, we saw that when Nimrod went out from the presence of the Lord, this is the very area that Nimrod moved over and moved his family to. And they grew into a multitude of people that were opposed to and caused great conflict to the children of Israel and to the Israelites. No wonder Jonah didn't want to go preach to them, you might think. But it's interesting what God is teaching them here, though. Because he's teaching them, even though you're saved, Jonah, what about other people? How do you think about others? And sometimes we might be like that, even as Christadelphians or Christians in this world. We might get the attitude of, you know, it's just about us and our families. Or maybe just some of our friends and those. And, and we can get into a law. And we might forget the great salvation and mercy that the Father showed us. And Jonah knew this. He says in verse 2 of chapter 4, I knew that you are gracious God. And here's that character stamp again from Exodus 34. Jonah even knew 
the character of God. He says, I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentance of the evil. So what was the problem? What did he need to learn? Yahweh said to him in verse 10, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and much cattle? So if you just bring your minds to thinking about what it was that Jonah was missing, he was missing compassion. He was missing looking out for others in this world and the love that we need to show to them. And the Lord answered this for us. He shows us, and we can look for so many of these in Scripture of these examples. And I'm just giving a few here just to get us sort of, sort of thinking about it. And there's so many more, and perhaps you'll be able to think of some great ones as well with this pattern. But you'll see here this parable that comes from Matthew 18, verses 23 to 33. And I just want to take some time just to look at this to see the message that the Lord Jesus Christ is trying to tell Jonah, and he's trying to tell us as well. This is the exact parable that Jonah would have, would have needed and that God is showing Jonah. Says the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And we see that one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him, and he forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not. But he went and he cast him into prison. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, he said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. See, just like Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. God gave him that salvation. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I have had pity on thee? See, remember what God said in chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not have spared Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left? And also much cattle. See, this comes right from Deuteronomy 1, verse 39. Where we see there, your little children, which you said should be a prey, and your, ch your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil. They shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. See, God is looking out for those that there's a possibility that we may be able to teach the truth to. And there's... There's a lesson here of learning about the character of God. It's not so cut and dry of just applying one way or the other. We have to look at the situations, but we know that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And so what happens in the story, however, if you go to the just two books over to the prophet Nahum, again, we have the character stamp here, right here, again, dealing with Nineveh. 
the residents of Nimrod some 150 or so time uh, years later in history after Jonah's time. But rather, we read in Nahum that the severity is going to come on this wicked city. See, that generation that turned to God had now turned, had now passed. A new generation had come up. This new generation didn't want to know about God, and so it's reiterated in verses 2 and 3 that God is a jealous. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. Yahweh revengeth and is furious. Yahweh will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord had his way in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So through Nahum, they were being shown that God's severity at times is important. But he first preaches to people to give them that opportunity and that witness to turn to him. If they don't turn, then we see that there's a necessity of, of God's severity that comes out in the text. But it can be confusing enough, my dear friends and brothers and sisters. It can be confusing to sometimes try to apply these principles. You think about the sons of thunder in the New Testament, James and John, which were the sons of Zebedee, and that, that's the sons of thunder and we see in Luke 9 this this account where they're with the Lord Jesus Christ and they're preaching the word of God and, the, and they're complaining to him that there were those that did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem so he was passing through the area of Samaria and the Samaritans at this time would not receive the Lord Jesus Christ and when his disciples James and John saw this they said Lord Will you that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did or as Elijah did? But look at the Lord's answer. He turns and rebukes them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And again, we have the namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh saves right there. That he's come to save them. But this is hard sometimes, we might say, of trying to discern when to apply this character. See, this account comes back from 2 Kings chapter 1, where, where um, relayed to us that Elijah had done this. Now, you may not know this account, so I'll just go over it real quickly again. But just look what happens here. You see, the king of Israel at the time sends on to Elijah a captain of 50 men. And they went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of the hill, and they spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again also he sent unto him another captain of the fifty with his fifty, and he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the, the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And he sent again a captain of the third, fifty and his fifty. So here's the third, third group comes up with fifty, but there's a difference. We see that this third captain of the 50 goes up and he, he came and he falls on his knees before Elijah. And he besought him and says to him, 
O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the lives of these fifty, thy servants, be precious in thy sight. And behold, there came down fire from heaven and burned up the two other captains of the former fifty with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah, go down now with him and be not afraid of him. For he arose and he went down with him onto the king. And so we see this lesson here that in the first two groupings, they didn't believe or show any respect whatsoever to God or his plan and purpose. Elijah had been preaching to the nation of Israel and they had become a rebellious nation. And it was shown in these two first captains that with their 50. And so the severity of God was shown at this time. But this last person, even coming from the same grouping, you might say, we just didn't know. We just don't know the heart of people is what's being shown here. And that his life was asked to be precious. And so this is what our Lord is showing us that we are to be like. The New Testament, this is called the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That those have, that have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts thereof are those that are following after this, this side, or trying to. But we're also warned about how powerful our rebellious flesh is, right? We're told that the works of the flesh are adult, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatreds, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. They which do such things, we're told, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so this is our challenge, is to learn these lessons, to learn how it is that we can apply this character in our lives. And the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated and shown, showed these, this, the fruit to others. I can't go over everything here just for time's sake, but if we just look at these attributes, these nine attributes that are here, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, or self-control. We have on the right side here where we can look up to find out in the Bible examples where the Lord has shown us of how, what we can do to combat these things in our own lives. We looked at number four on the board here, which had to do with patience or long-suffering in that, in that parable of the king taking account of his servants in Matthew 18. So we can see, we can go to these parables and we can see how it is that, that Jesus is showing us how to learn about God's character and how to apply it in our lives. And so just continuing on, a beautiful section in Colossians chapter 3 tells us that if you be then risen with Christ. And just look for all these three signs that we learned from the Old Testament here, all coming together now in the New Testament. These three signs shown in how Jesus is showing us how we can have these things conquered. The fleshly serpent from sign one and how that can be hung on the pole. How our leprous sinful nature can be cleansed and how our lives can first be converted to baptism, but then we can put on, as it were, the blood of Christ in a walk like Christ, 
doing the things he would do. Now, how do you do that? Well, Colossians tells us, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Mortify or crucify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. And we've already looked at what these were. But look at verse 10. Put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And see, that locks our minds right back to our, our beginning slides. Right in the beginning when God was trying to design in man and woman his image and his likeness. And we can do that. We can put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after this image of him that created him. We're asked to put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness long-suffering or patience, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. And above all these things, put on, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfection. See, love is the glue or the bond that holds it all together. Without love, the other attributes are not held together. Whatever we do, or whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And so this is our calling, and this is what we are asked to do. In the book of James, James tells us, Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive trees, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh? Who's a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good behavior his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying, see that bitterness again, that rebellion. If we have that bitter envying and strives in our hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. It's serpent-like. It's from the seed of the serpent, isn't it? For where envying and strife is, there is confusion, just like Babel, and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So how can we show forth? And manifest this character in our lives. There's so many examples that we can look at. But I just want to leave us with this last slide. And these points that we can maybe think about and look up as examples of what we can do. And there's many more that we could, we could find if we, if we had the time. But just to get us started and, the, and that we can each find these as an exercise. Matthew 5 verse 44 to 45 says, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. To be children of God, because God makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And so we can follow the example of God and, and follow the example of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 24, verses 25 to 26, the faithful and the wise servant is told to give meat to the household in due season. This is something we can do to build our character and build the characters of others as well. Also in Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40, it shows us that the sheep were on the king's right hand inherited the kingdom. 
But the goats, the stubborn goats on the left, the rebellious goats, were rejected. Those that were faithful were told, inasmuch as you did this to the least of these my brethren, you have done it to me. So we can take care of each other and take care of the flock as the Lord Jesus Christ took care of his sheep. In Luke 10, in the story or the account of the Good Samaritan, the neighbor was the one who showed mercy on the man that fell among the thieves. And we were told to go and do likewise. Here's another example of how we can build character and build the character of, of, of our Heavenly Father. In James 1, verse 27, pure religion is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep unspotted from the world. And there, even that word and should be even, even. So you can read it, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, even to keep unspotted from the world. It's like when you visit the fatherless and the widows and, and look after each other, that in, in turn will keep us unspotted from the world. And lastly, our last point here in James chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, it's no profit if we tell someone to be warmed and to be filled, filled when we know that there's something wrong with them or they need help, but we don't give them the things that they need. And there's many more examples that we could bring up, but we want to uh, end it there. And, and hopefully these classes have given us some encouragement of how we can learn more together about the Lord Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father and his character. And may we apply that and manifest it to each other in these days which remain.